Welcome to episode 13 of Creative Welly, Courageous Conversations with Bold Humans. My name is DK and you're listening to the audio version of the video podcast. The video podcast is produced by John over at Empire Films and we're hosted by David at Flashdog Studios. In this episode, we get to chat with Mayu Suzuki, who's a honey exporter to Japan, and also Trent Yo, who's an executive director of ZipTrack Eco Tours in Queenstown. We chat about leadership, creativity, culture, design, ecotourism, sustainability, and honey, of course. So enjoy the 13th episode. Tell us about your earrings. My earrings? Yeah. It's a Huya earrings. Huya. Huya, yeah. But they're made of tires. Tires, yeah, so it's recyclable and super light. I love it. Are they made by a local artist here? Yeah. Oh, I don't think it's Wally. I think she might be based in Auckland or something. Yeah. Yeah. But love it. Love it. There's lots of good uses for tyres and rubber bits that we don't use again. Creative. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be creative. They look really nice. People make jungles and stuff in Asia. Oh yeah. 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 Okay. (laughs) Have you seen it? No. On YouTube. YouTube it tonight. YouTube is good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) There's also sandals that uh, you can extend as you grow. Have you seen them? Yes. Yeah. The, yeah whole, the, you, the whole idea is you get a pair of a sandal that lasts you your childhood type thing oh. and and it's designed to extend. I love that sort of design that continues, has a life cycle more than you yeah. expect. How, what material do they use? I, I, think, I think it probably is recycled rubber. Mm. This is what I was yeah, cool. thinking. That's a really good idea. And the whole design as I remember it, it kind of, it, it looks like a crumpled shoe. Yeah. In a sense, because it kind yeah. of elongates out and uncrumples as you grow, which kind of is a cool idea. Yeah, it's really, awesome. it's really nice design. Yeah. I'm not sure how successful as a business or opportunity it was <laughs> or is. Depends. It's nice it? design. Yeah, at. isn't it that great story where a shoe salesperson was sent to some place in the world uh, to explore new markets, um, and they sent two. Shoe, shoe salespeople, and one of them sent back, situation dire, nobody wears shoes here. And the other person sent back, situation great, nobody has shoes here. Right. And it's a different way of thinking about the I same see. thing. When you look at that and go, I don't know, but it's through our own perceptions true, and yeah. own true, kind of uh, ideologies and one. experience. Pardon? I've not heard that one. I mean, no. no. It's a good I- way of yeah. raising the idea of thinking differently yeah. about the same situation. Yeah. Just a metaphor. Very smart. Mm. Mm, but sustainability is a big thing for you. Yeah. I I suppose I formally got into it at university, mm. like conceptually. I suppose I grew up with it anyway. I just like that? it. Well, I feel like it. my, particularly my father, was very, I suppose it all stems from design and the concept of design and good design. Mm. And good design's efficient and good design's maybe purposeful or empathetic and good design is for more than less and all that sort of stuff right and so So I sort of learned those concepts but then I sort of more formally went learned about it through architecture which was my study um, which I I I did do and had a very intention on continuing to do but then it never really happened. Um, So you trained as an architect right yep in uni? Yeah, studied architecture for nine years. Oh my gosh, amazing. <laughs> because it's a five-year course and uh, it usually includes a year of, um, a year of um, 
experience. Yeah. Um, right. yeah. And then I kind of did an OE in between. And I mm. kind of got to yeah. part time. I was yeah. working in architecture anyway. Mm. And I was thinking, oh, I'm not sure I really want to finish this. It's a lot of a bother and costs lots of money. Right. And so I almost didn't finish. But I finished architecture in nine, nine years, which is a long time to study. Mm. And then I did more study, but that's another story. Your dad was an architect, right? Or designer? Yes. Somewhere. Yep. He was trained in architecture uh, and industrial design. Ooh, okay, yeah. And Those then, are two very different disciplines, uh, right? But they yeah, do call so they're, design, they're design, it's like product design, you know, I suppose, mm, and then large-scale yeah. house or building design. Mm. So it's on a different scale, I suppose. Mm. It's more about production and uh, factory stuff than other stuff. But I think they have a lot to join as the future goes forward. Gotcha, yeah. Um, and then he also studied education and then taught interior design. So that's the long story of his yeah. study. His but the influence then of you and your direction probably. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. I mean, my brother also studied architecture as well, <laughs> which is a bit weird. One of those weird families that runs in family. the same thing. Yeah, cool. Um, this was all back in Melbourne? Uh, yep, in Melbourne. I studied actually outside, just outside Melbourne. Right. Um, okay. It was a good place to study um, because the course that I studied was a real focus on that environmental mm. big picture um, and I think that a lot of the architecture courses are, they're quite different but there's not that many with deep sustainability no. discussion which is a bit weird because yeah. that's really what leads to a long-term future for everybody yeah. and everything um, in my opinion anyway. Oh, that's so interesting and that's where you started your sustainability journey? Yeah, that's where I sort of formally got into it, that's what I would say. Cool. Mm. Yeah, it was kind of a natural part of the course there and uh, I, at the same time I suppose it was outdoor stuff as well, my, my own life, so I got into mm. that and that sort of concreted it all together. Of course. Yeah. And that convergence now is evidence in what you have been doing for the last decade, right, in ZipTrack. Yeah, it so... It feels like a nice convergence pieces from all those angles. Yeah, people, experience. Yeah a bit of physical infrastructure mm -hmm. and um, instead of design of things, I'm more interested in design of experience now. Mm. And so that's why a tourism products, the obvious, maybe a good thing to do. How would you describe ZipTrack to people who don't know? Uh, so flying fox or zipline tourism activity in the trees. We use flying foxes, I mean, sorry, tree houses. So sort of low tech log architecture. Yeah. and combine it with a few high-techy pieces that are invisible and overlay a story of place. So the whole idea is that we gain a sense of place and understanding of where you are mm. um, as well as a heightened experience. Cool. And that's the, all down in Queenstown? Queenstown, yeah. Wow. I need to go. You would love it. Oh, yeah. it sounds <laughs> incredible. It's a, good, it's a good place because the outdoors are so obviously beautiful. Oh. Yeah. And yeah. so it's a great place to learn, understand and have empathy for mm. the environment that we surround yeah. ourselves. Oh, absolutely. So the layer that you add in, which I've, I've been to a few outdoor adventure things and go ape and these mm. types of things where you zip line or climb between trees and stuff like that. The, I think the magical layer of what you do at ZipTrack is that sustainability education side, mm. the, al the alliance with the flora and fauna mm -hmm. there both in the physical infrastructure of the build, because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. you have no footprint, yep. uh, but also the education as you zip in through the trees mm. and you stop at each station where they, what, a leader, what you call? A, a guide or a, a guide, yeah. Yeah, got a guide. And they yeah. tell you about what you're, where you're actually doing it. 
and why, why is it so rich and important to keep cool. what you have there, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, for me, it's, it's actually just a different mode of travel, which happens to be fun. Um, <laughs> and, and it allows people to get into those places that wouldn't um, normally be up in a tree mm. yes. and over an amazing environment. And then open up the, that storytelling layer. Once again, it's mm. memory making through heightened experience and a, a specific story to tell, like a, something to take home as such. Mm. That's a, a deep. And my favourite recent experience, this no, about a year ago, I think now, end of last year, last time I was down, and you were like, our night tour has started. It might have been longer now. I can't really remember. We went on a night zip trekking tour. So at night now, you were doing night tours, which means basically zip trekking in the dark. So you're stepping off with just one little light on your head and some really That's low so level scary. lighting. Yeah. And you zip trekking through beautiful darkness, but yeah. the canopy opens up and you got the lake. You got the vista of the the, the beautiful stars down there, which is so much, um, so much kind of uh, opportunity to see the sky down there once yeah. you're higher up, right? Yeah, out yeah. of the town, it's beautiful. Yeah. So tell me about like your development into these different things because of you've had to. But um, what was the inspiration behind behind the night? Uh, from a, I mean, maybe an obvious business perspective is what are your operation hours and how do you extend them? Right. Um, okay. We already run, you know, before these times, 365, and uh, as in 365 days. And so in our winter, our winter days are fairly short because of daylight. Mm. Um, from a design perspective or experiential perspective, it's just a completely different experience. It's the same thing exactly, but it actually feels very, very different. Totally. And it's, um, it's partly about knowing what, this whole idea of knowing what you're going towards or knowing where, what your surrounds is um, okay. versus the idea of, you know, a way of trust mm. um, and just to be there, like, like you're surrounded by you and that's it. And so there's, there's sounds of the forest and... Um, the, maybe the town below and th things like that, but it's actually kind of just you're very insular in a way. Mm. So it's, it's quite a different experience. And then, you know, people are not skiing at night time. <laughs> and, and most of the time in winter, they're skiing during the day. Right, of course. So it's a place where there's a, a let's say, a blue sky of opportunity. Mm. Um, so true. So I, I think it has had limited success. It's been interesting and fun, and, and it's always something we'll love to do. Yeah. I think mm. we could take it up another level, but we'll work on that. Oh, Looking forward to it on another level. Yeah. I'd love to bring you in around the sustainability because we kind of went mm -hmm. wide berth, but in terms of what you do, tell us about kind of what takes up your time. What takes up my time? Um, first, I'm really passionate about sustainability, mm -hmm. but just within what I can do, mm -hmm. I recently bought an EV car. Oh, well so, you know, trying to sort of be environmentally friendly. Um, but yeah, my. <laughs> But in terms of what I do, I sell New Zealand manuka honey to Japan, to Japanese mm. e-commerce. So, yeah, it's not 100% environmentally friendly, unfortunately, but I'm looking for a way. Mm. Um, there's like different types of fuel these days. Apparently, mm. people are like um, developing over in, I think, Spain or something like that. So, don't know when it's going to come out, but mm -hmm. it'll be good. Just keep an eye out for, you know, what we mm. can do. But Well, the big story angle for you is the manuka honey yeah. and cultural uh, 
connection between Japan and New Zealand through mm. the Manuka story, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. yeah? That's right. And so tell us a bit about the company first, just because it's a delightful sure. story and yeah. so how, it's a f- why are you involved? It's a family-owned mm. business. Um, mm-hmm. We've been doing, me and my mum and dad have been doing it for like the last 13, 14 years or so. Probably a little bit longer than that, actually. Um, and I was a student out in Kabati. Didn't know what to do, you know, left and right. And I was still learning English. I came to New Zealand when I was 14 without knowing a word of English, which is terrifying to think about. Mm. Um, but yeah, my host mum and dad sort of um, brought me up over in Paikakriki. And um, yeah, learned the way of Kiwi. And I was like, oh, I really like it here. You know, it's kind of like suits my lifestyle, suits my personality. Still love Japan, but I'm like, oh, mom and dad, I'm quite okay living here. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, and then my mom has been a big fan of Manuka honey ever since, I don't know, 30 years ago. Um, she had stomach ulcer. So right. she was taking Manuka honey for that. And that was a really beautiful, natural well, cure without having a side effect. Mm -hmm. And she was taking medicine, obviously prescribed by doctors, and that wasn't working out for her, side effects and whatnot, but Manuka worked out really beautifully. Wow. Yeah, so that's where our story started with my mum. But 30 years ago, Manuka honey probably wasn't, didn't have the the legacy that it has today, and even the understanding about the properties of healing. Yeah, it was really expensive honey. So it was available, it just didn't have the brand? In those days, do you think? Yeah, I don't think many people knew of Manuka honey. Yeah. The only reason my mum knew was because my auntie, she she's just amazing in terms of vast knowledge. She's you know, she right. knows a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think my mum got introduced by my auntie and yeah, that's how we got to know. And, you know, a few years later came to New Zealand. Who knew that's where Manuka honey came from? <laughs> <laughs> and I graduated at uni- uh, school over there, yeah. college. Um, and then my mum and dad wanted to move from Saitama, which is next to Tokyo, mm-hmm. up to Hokkaido, which uh-huh. is up northern part of Japan, because my, my dad has been working. Actually, he was an architect, but yep. then he moved to, um, uh, what do you call, marketing mm-hmm. company. So he's been working in Tokyo for like the longest time, and he just mm. got really tired of living there. You know, you can imagine just mm. being a sardine every single morning. Yeah. Yeah, course, so yeah. they got really tired of that lifestyle, wanted to move out to Hokkaido, which is a little bit more spacious nature and laid back. It's, I would say it's almost like a mini New Zealand mm-hmm. in Japan. Yeah, so they moved out there and they thought, ah, what are we going to do? Yeah. Um, and they decided, what if, they, they rang me up and said, Mayu, what kind of manuka honey are there in New Zealand? And I was like, well, there's plenty. Um, so in the supermarket, you were like, yeah, I went, I went around, bought a lot of, you know, Manuka honey, went to see a, a few suppliers and my mom and dad flew over and we all went on the camp, little, little camper van and traveled all the way from like Northland to, um, to Queenstown, wow. actually, uh, Queens, Queenstown, yes, Queenstown, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and that's where our journey began. So how long have you been exporting Manuka then as um, a family business? Probably about 15 years now. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And what's the scale? Give us a sense of like how much do you export? Uh, we export about say 20, 40 tons a year ish. Okay. That's wow. No small thing. Cargoes. Come in small parts, don't they? They do. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you source 
the honey and rebrand it or you have your own brand? How does that work? A bit of both. So yeah. we have our own brand. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we buy the finished product. Mm -hmm. So we buy it from a supplier mm -hmm. that we trust mm -hmm. and yep. um, we kind of have an exclusivity on the label. Mm -hmm. And with some company, we have our own label as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So sort of building a story behind that brand is really important for us yep. um, because like DK said before, we're not just selling the product as Manuka honey. Manuka honey is beautiful for you and everyone knows that. But mm -hmm. we, are, well, we also want to um, deliver what's amazing about New Zealand to Japanese people. Mm -hmm. And that's including lifestyle, including you know, mm -hmm. the laid back culture here mm -hmm. and every other food that we have over here as well. Mm -hmm. For example, olive oil. We've got beautiful olive and avocado oil mm -hmm. in the country. And just so many different products like this beautiful chocolate right here too. Feel free. <laughs> so I, I'm interested in how intentional that was as a yeah. play for a story play, a brand play early on or did you come to that later on? I suppose when you have the product and you have a market but sometimes it's not a market fit because mm -hmm. the education's not there, the awareness is not there so you need to wrap it around other stories or it might be already and now we're just layering in mm. the uh, sentimental value of it all or the, the idea of 100% yeah. New Zealand pure or whatever it is or the even medicinal. What do you focus on? What aspects of the stories back have in, you changed or focused on? Yeah, back in old days, yeah. uh, we had to tell the story. We had to educate the customers, first of all. Cause on what specifically? Though? On even honey, even how to consume honey. Because okay. Japanese people eat rice, right? Right. You don't put honey on rice, okay. right? <laughs> so where does so, the honey go? Well, so we had to educate, you know, how you how you would consume honey. For example, on your tea or just we right. we recommend to have it on its own. So just like a Winnie mm -hmm. the Pooh, just mm -hmm. like dip it in and lick it, and that's the best way to go about it. That's I do it every morning. <laughs> okay, Winnie the Pooh but, yeah. helps you. Yeah, right. exactly. Cool. Love it. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people yes. not spreading it on their bread, I suppose. Right? That's it. Yeah, that's right. Very simply. No, yeah. they wouldn't. Yeah, so we had to educate from step one mm. and say, how do you consume honey? And then what is Manuka honey? It is from New Zealand. Um, and right, well, the story was really difficult to tell at that time because no one knew what Manuka honey was. And now the vast um, audience, or, um, people in Japan would know about Manuka honey. Yeah. Now the problem or the, the key is how do we differentiate from the others? Mm -hmm. Right. Why are we different? Why should they buy our Manuka honey? And how do you do that? Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a big question. <laughs> but in the nutshell, yeah. uh, value. It's mm -hmm. all about... So I'm in New Zealand. That's a huge advantage. Um, people in Japan don't know what it is like here. So the other day, just before Christmas, I went to um, uh, beekeepers. Um, I went okay. to the beehives with the beekeeper. Mm -hmm. Oh man, their day was just insane. They wake up at like 2 a.m. in the morning, mm -hmm. works all the way until midday or just past midday, take a little nap, drives all the way back to Northland, you know? Whoa. Yeah. Anyway, so. Things like that. I went, you know, I went out and filmed yeah, cool. the beekeepers, mm. and so that the Japanese people can feel um, as if they're almost there. Oh, yeah. so you're creating content, content around yeah. the source yeah. of this yeah. manuka honey, and then the story of how these people devote their lives to it. And exactly. All that other stuff. Yeah, 
and who we are as well as Mariri, you know. Um, well, Mariri is my company name and it means kind, kindness or gentle. That's right? how we believe anyway. Oh, I didn't know um, that. Yeah, yeah. So we want to deliver kindness of New Zealand to Japan. So, and I, I'm interested because the, you talked about the consumption of a product that people don't eat on a, on a normal, you know, normally people... Yeah. We might say just put it on some bread, but that's not something that is a Japan Japan option in the time, maybe now. And then you've got another piece though, it was brand New Zealand wasn't as strong either. No, not quite. Not 15, too much. Yeah, I mean, New Zealand's got a pretty good relationship with Japan mm -hmm. over many years, and it's been really interesting to see that grow. And we've had rugby recently and all sorts of other stuff, but mm -hmm. the brand of New Zealand wasn't there either. It was kind of a far off place that I'm not sure what, what to think about. So there was another yeah, piece to that story right. that you had to sell in at that time. You're absolutely right. People thought it was, you know, Australia. It was part of Australia. Right. Yeah. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> no offence. No, agreed. Absolutely. Yeah. No. <laughs> and it's quite different because brand New Zealand and 100% pure New Zealand, was, I think it's, I should know, I'm not sure if it's 15 or 20 years old, right. but that right. literally so came long, around right. the same yeah. time. Yeah. So it would have been completely new at that stage, yeah. and it's it's one of those brands that we've looked back and said that's extremely successful yeah. from a, any global branding perspective, much less tourism, um, and a lot of trade of products in New Zealand is based on that branding yeah. now. Right. It's not meant to be, but it just kind of has by default is actually another brand. It's diffused into the social consciousness of for it. sure, and then people have picked it up and utilised it, which I suppose I that's what you. Oh, sorry what it was intended to be used for. Yeah, I suppose it was to raise awareness and tell a story. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily sent, designed for product um, um, export, no. mm. but I think it, it became that. It permeated and out, yeah. Now it's maybe even adapting from that. Yeah. So, so in terms of that, was, was that how, did, how, did you, how do you describe how that was handled, like brand New Zealand brand for your honey? Zealand. Was there an approach there or? Um, I think, I think you're right, like people slowly started to know what New Zealand is, thanks mm -hmm. to, you know, pure New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, so we didn't have to do too much on mm -hmm. New Zealand itself. Mm -hmm. It was more for us, focus was Manuka honey and then New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, right, the product first and product first, almost yeah. New Zealand took care of itself because of yeah. the campaign and everything else. I and you rode so. the wave of that. Yeah. I would, I would think good so. Good timing, really, yeah. as well. Right, yeah. Probably, yes. Yeah. And, and so I'm also interested in the idea of Asian cultures and consumption of stuff um, and how everything has an effect. Um, the idea that food was really like sustenance and maintenance and so all that sort of stuff, which is a very, you know, very Asian cultural aspect. Mm. Um, do you think that, that that was one of the, obviously, the sell in in Japan, um, it's good for your health. Yeah, totally. Um, well, due to the nature of manuka honey, we can't talk anything about medicinal stuff. So manuka honey is really good in anti-inflammatory and inflammatory and, you know, all sort of stuff, right? Antibacterial, but we can't say any of that. We can't say it's good for your throat. Really? It's good for your, you know, scars or whatsoever. None at uh all. Why, until there's like uh, medical research yeah. and it's peer reviewed, et cetera, et cetera. There oh, really? Is. Okay. Yes, yeah, it sort of makes sense. But, but in yeah. Japan, it's got to be approved by Japanese. And New Zealand now, and, too. Right. Even in New Zealand. So if you're selling Manuka honey as yes. a food product, you can't claim medical purposes on it. So the plus, you know, the SP factor, what, what's it? Oh, UMF or MGS or MGO. 
those yeah, factors because you see on the the, yeah. the labels plus whatever plus yeah, whatever that's right. um and they're supposed to indicate as i understood it like the healing properties or the medicinal properties of right. this type of honey yeah. is that allowed here in new zealand yes but then it's not allowed in japan no it is allowed also right it, it's really fine line. I see okay. where you're coming from. It's like antibacterial property, right? So it is um, higher the number is better. Um, there's different numbers like 500 or like 20 or 5, but just higher the better. Okay. But um, how should I say it? It's more, it's, to be honest, I th um, yeah, it's a hard one. It's a really hard one. You can say it in Japan. Okay. Just say, you can say in Japan, you can say in New Zealand too. But when you're selling products, um, say on the web page because we sell it online, right? Mm -hmm. You can't say um, this is really good for your acne or good for your throat or you should take it for your stomach ulcer. Can't say that, both in Japan and New Zealand. Hmm. Because yeah. there is some research, I'm assuming, on yes. the medicinal properties that have been peer-reviewed and yeah. scientifically yeah. things. So uh, it's an interesting one, the idea of modern science. Yeah. Uh, versus like food and attributes versus uh, traditional medicine stuff as a traditional classically called traditional Chinese medicine but it means the whole of the Asian medicines which is a whole nother layer of things here because mm. mm. there's a question so in traditional Asian medicines yep. is there a place for honey like is, is honey do you know I think it's more Egyptian from what I right, hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm. But I mean, Chinese medicine is quite big in Japan as well, mm -hmm. like Kampo, for example. Um, and we believe a lot of majority of Japanese people believe in natural remedy. Mm -hmm. um, mm, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think I think it was easier for Japanese people to understand that you can use honey for healing purposes, even though we can't say it. People talk, right? Yes. And there's yeah. a lot of yes. reviews. There's yeah. a lot of people just, you know, talking about it. Unfortunately, Jap not many Japanese people can understand English, so they can't access to the data, the medical data yep. that we have here. Right. Um, of course. And in terms of saying medical, for example, apple is really good for you. One apple a day, you know, keeps, keeps the, the doctors away. away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you can't claim that apple is good for your A, B, and C, right? Yeah. 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 I think it's like the same. Yep. Method. Unfortunately, that's fine. Yeah, yeah that's, I, yeah. I'm really interested as well in the your management of this because you're based here. You have a team that's in Japan. You're the only person here, but the company is what six or seven people. Yeah, about ten-ish. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And that's what you manage in a sense yeah. now, right? Yeah. Talk to us about how you literally do that. I know it's going to be online and stuff, but and in the cultural aspects and the timing and the language. Oh man. So you've got lots of layers, right? That's <laughs> yeah, the whole point. Yeah, definitely layers. I struggled with culture the most. Okay. Culture, oh, because I'm stuck in between both suppliers and Japanese customers yeah. and my team in Japan. Mm -hmm. And they all have just different mindsets. Give us an example, if you can. Um, I would usually say, uh, you know, we have, um, we sleep on the floor while, you know, Kiwis sleep on bed. It's just fundamental difference <laughs> to life. It's just, Indeed. yeah, sorry, that was like real yeah. back in old days. Yeah, but cool. even now, um, 
for example, the product is say, this is what the product should look like. If it's like this, it's unacceptable. But if it's like this, can you tell if that's unacceptable or not? Mm -hmm. Japanese customers can. Oh. Q is not too important. So presentation for Japanese customers was super, super important, which took me years and years to you know, talk to the suppliers and say, hey, this is what we expect mm -hmm. and we, we can't accept anything below the standard. Mm -hmm. Oh, God, Fascinating. It, was, it was tough. <laughs> it was really difficult. But over the time you've been exporting to Japan, do you think that the Japanese cultural things have changed and become not more ubiquitous, but like a, a little softer? Because, you know, the traditional Japanese you know, ways of seeing things or, or yeah. market view might yeah. be quite... I don't know, has it changed or not really? Yes and no. Not yeah, really? Not okay. Japan takes a long time to yeah. change. Yeah. Yeah, some people have already, like yeah. especially the younger generation. I, st I see the change mm. in younger generations, but man, Japan's pretty, um, you know, a proud country. <laughs> and so to, to DK's point, like do you, you've been in New Zealand a long time. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you're sometimes a bit more Kiwi than Japanese now, sometimes when you're communicating with your team. Totally. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, yeah it's quite difficult some, at times. Um, so I can speak Japanese fluently, mm -hmm. but um, at times I think the things that I, th it's more of the things that I think or the value that I hold mm -hmm. is completely different from my team. So, okay. um, and, and also the humor changes at times too. <laughs> of course. Yeah, so communicating with them is really difficult. Mm. Um, but time difference is not that bad. It's only three to four hours. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, New Zealand being forward. So I just have to sometimes work later during the day. But you have a morning bad. to yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember we had conversations in the past about holidays. Yeah, right. And the difference of yeah, expectations true. and cultures around taking time mm -hmm. off. Yeah. yeah, could you speak to that? Because oh, I think that's man. fascinating. Um, yeah. Japanese people don't really take holidays. <laughs> they don't. Mm. Zero. And even from the new year, they mm. just start working. They, they do love work. And it's amazing work ethics, but that can be really difficult for your mental health, you know. And that's, that lifestyle worked for maybe my dad's generation, but mm. not for our generation. Mm -hmm. And Japan still doesn't know how to adjust to that, I, I feel, my opinion. Um, and yeah, that's, that's challenging. Mm. Yeah, because I remember you saying about us having certain holidays like Anzac Day, mm. obviously right. very specific to New Zealand, um, and going, yeah, I've taken the day off, but uh, my team will keep working, and yeah. there's a disconnect there, and maybe a bit of tension as well yeah. about taking time off. And it's like, gotten so much better though. Back in those yeah. days, right, um, it was really really difficult. Mm. I really almost had to be Japanese person when I'm in front of the computer mm -hmm. and I had to really just connect with my team um, let them know that yes I am Japanese <laughs> oh, okay but now my team understands that I'm you know a little bit different mm -hmm. to, to uh, <laughs> you know a Special, Japanese person yeah. who has spent all their time in Japan yeah. so they're taking advantage of that which is great a good advantage mm -hmm. like as in okay so you're kind of half half you know like a hybrid so you know we can get the best of the both world rather yeah. than, oh, you don't know 100% Japanese or you don't know 100% English, you know? So 
I think I'm try I I did a lot of work to for my team to understand that and also my team opened up to understand that as well so which is really beautiful mm. and the suppliers as well they're changing back to the um your presentation for example because of um what government have done to um, to open up New Zealand and say, mm -hmm. hey, we have to, you know, be a more exported company. And mm -hmm. NZT have done a lot mm -hmm. of education towards the suppliers. So they, they have an understanding about Japan and Japanese culture and Japanese consumers as well, which is just mm. great. So I think it's like taking step towards each other. You yeah. Know? yeah. Well, I suppose you've probably seen that in Queenstown. And I know you were involved in some, I think it was Chinese uh, YouTube creation stuff. So you've always had an eye to the Asian market as well, but being in Queenstown, the correlation between Japanese and just the Asian market is massive, right? As I understand it in tourism yeah, circles. And I think there's so many, like, particularly when you talk about Mauritum and, and China, um, but also I think there's just so many connections between, I mean, Japan and is similar to New Zealand in so many ways because of, size and proximity from the equator and mm. geography and it's completely different in terms of people and people make up but there's a lot of similarities to um, there as well and I just think that as, as trades increasing um, and connections is increasing particularly if you go to Auckland um, the amount of Asia, Asia influence is quite significant now um, yeah it's just it's, it's infiltrating every part of what we're doing but my view is that we're, we're they're our neighbours. Asia is our neighbour, mm. and so we need to be really good in, a na in our neighbourhood. Yeah. It's, it's kind of honestly that simple. I mean, obviously, I and Mayu have a relationship, a direct connection mm. um, with stuff happening in Asia. But I, I just kind of think that it's a good thing to do. Obviously, you could argue it's going to be the century of China or the century of Asia yeah. anyway. So it's from an economics perspective, mm -hmm. it makes mm. sense to be where the growth opportunity is. Mm. Mm. Um, but I'm just I'm just interested in you know I'm interested in your, in your product uh, in terms of honey. Have you then thought that you would take it to another place in Asia? Is that are you doing that or have you thought I've, about doing that? A little bit. We've yeah, thought okay. a little bit about it. Yeah. Um, but to go into a market, I need a strong partner mm -hmm. over there. Mm -hmm. um, we know a lot about Japanese consumers and how they think and how they. Um, approach, but I wouldn't know anything about, say, you know, Malaysia or Singapore or China. Mm -hmm. um, but I have thought about it. Because yeah. it's not the same. Um, that They can be quite different, sometimes the opposite, and sometimes right. it's quite similar in a way. Yeah. But um, your advantage with understanding yeah. Japan and New Zealand well yeah. would set you in a pretty yeah. good path, I would say. Yeah to finding the right partners and be able to sort of yeah. translate that. Because all through Asia, they're all about food being an asset for our body. Mm. Um, and so honey is an obvious thing as part of that totally. story. Have you ever thought about sort of um, connecting your product to something like Manuka honey or other Tahonga of New Zealand? Um, in terms of products, not, not really. Um, I believe that tourism has a role to play in setting that scene for other opportunities like that. But um, yeah, my focus has always been on the people side of it. Mm. So um, yeah, not really in the product side. That's, yeah, I suppose serious. maybe not my natural place, but yeah. yeah. That being said though, the tourism industry itself could lean into this discussion a little bit because even though you sell a product that's not 
touristy in that regards. It does have this layer of storytelling, mm. uh, cross-cultural connections, and uh, that impermanence of or impermeability, or you know what I mean. It's mm -hmm. like seeping in stuff. Yeah. And you sit on the in industry Aotearoa board. Yes, for, tourism, yeah, industry, tourism board. board. Yeah. Like, what's the current state, or what has the current state been pre-COVID yes. relating to Asian markets? Yes. And then post-COVID or during COVID, peri-COVID? So that's like a probably a huge question. Yeah. So obviously our markets internationally have just completely dropped. Mm. Um, I think that due to social digital, we're keeping eyes on. Um, and New Zealand probably has, and it'd be interested to hear of you as well, um, a very good reputation internationally for its um, humanitarian approach to COVID and how it's responded. Um, and I think brand New Zealand's probably looking better than it has done for many years. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the bounce back, there's no question there's demand from all around Asia for traveling here. Mm. And so the question is, is how do we maintain that relationship? Because it affects the things like other trade, um, but also yeah. um, how then do we become first off the mark yeah. um, for the volume of people that want to come here? Mm. My view is that we need to be even more laser focused on the type of person who we might like to um, attract because New Zealand can't handle everyone, actually. Right. Like New Zealand's a, what I would consider sort of a low volume destination and the, the value in it is low volume. And as soon as we become... Uh, you know, classically mass tourism, which of course we were moving down that track anyway. Um, then we actually de uh, we lose the we lose the 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 amount we can the value we can get from those people, and we also destroy what we had. Is there a comparable out there that you're you're describing something which is a creating a little bit of a bottleneck you know, or a squeeze in the market a little bit? Yeah, just being focused, more concentrated results. Yeah. Is there a comparable out there? Another country who's doing yeah, this? the extreme example, and it's definitely not what we would do, is Bhutan. Right. Um, and it's the place where you have to go through a bit of a process to be in that country. And mm -hmm. anyone who does that is really interested in being there. Mm -hmm. Like they're really focused on getting the whole of that. Yeah. And when you're there, because I'm lucky enough to have been there, you don't feel like you're, there's not a lot of tourists everywhere. You yeah. definitely see the tourist road and et cetera. But it's, it's not like you're freely roaming in a place that, you know, everyone's in there and doing. And as a person who loves to travel mm -hmm. and loves to be free and independent, <laughs> I was like unsure about the idea of buying into a, I've got a guide and that guide looks after you the whole time. It sounds mm -hmm. like I'm being looked after and I don't feel like I'm, a, I'm an independent person and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Except for the fact is when it comes down to it, if tourism doesn't add value to place, and the people of that yeah. place, then why does anyone get involved in tourism? And just to be clear, you're not advocating that system for New Zealand, but it's a it's a spectrum, right? That's for sure. one end of the spectrum. We were at the other end, which is a very open... Probably premium. not at the other end, I would say. We were moving we're closer towards, towards the other yeah. end, this mass tourism. Yes. We've become highly accessible compared to 10 years ago yes. when I first arrived yes. and then 20 years ago, um, stuff like that. So we were becoming more available, shall we say, to the mass market. Mm. But now with COVID, what do you think that's going to do to 
uh, not just the borders, there's going to be some massive practical implications of that, but tourism as a whole. Obviously, in the last year, you've been very close to that and had personal and direct experience with your your business. Yeah, I was reading an article this morning and basically said that New Zealand, because of the approach that it's got, may get behind the tourism growth potential, as in um, because we have an elimination as opposed to Control. You know, watching the curve, yeah. what's it called? Flattening the curve yeah. approach. It's a, it's a conservative approach and mm. I actually think it's a good idea. Um, and I think that what that will mean is as, as borders open, they're going to open and close and there'll be deals done and pol mm. politics involved mm. and medical passports and all that stuff yes. happening in between. But the fact is, is we will open slower or at a, a slower rate to all the other countries. Mm. Thailand's looking at opening up and they've already opened up to high net value tourists. And... Um, so the Bahamas and Hawaii and a whole lot of other places have these special visas to go into these places now. This is before the rollouts have really started even happening. Yeah. They're already getting in there. And you could argue that's going to be really bad or really good for them. Who knows? And time will tell. I think that New Zealand um, has a huge, is a, is a really interesting place because it's right next to Australia as well. For me, in terms of tourism survival, really the Australia-New Zealand relationship is the most important one it's going to have. Yeah. And then who knows what the other one is? It's mm. probably Singapore, because that's the one we have a really good handshake with. Yeah. And they have good Both controls. Both trade and mm. everything else. Yeah. Taiwan politics. would be another good one, mm -hmm. but it's too controversial in front yeah. of China. Um, and, and Japan, actually, probably. I mean, yeah. I, I don't really know. Like, there's a whole lot of things. There's the politics, and then there's the medical, and there's the... Um, there's a whole lot of different pieces. Mm. But, you know, that's definitely Singapore has been discussed quite a few times. Singapore's trying to line up with Hong Kong, as an yeah. example, again. So we're going quite broad, but can so, I ask you a specific thing? How has COVID affected ZipTrack? Uh, it's easily the hardest thing that I've had to deal with in business. Yeah. Um, we sort of just, you can just say three quarters of your business is gone. Um, so that's kind of led to me halving the scale of the number of people we have mm. on, a, on, in, on the team. Um, we've probably got a, a pretty robust team and a very close team in a way, but like it's, it's also, it's just been pretty hard. It's also led to us being more agile, I would say, probably more agile and ability, our ability to change is better than it's ever been. Mm. Um, but I've tried lots of stuff and I'm not sure I've been that successful at finding a, a way out. I, I'm honestly, there's not been many like really amazing examples in tourism mm. of people pivoting actually. Mm. But I also don't know how much you can. Yeah. There's certain things that are more adaptable to change than other things. Especially mm -hmm. um, you've got a location specific thing. It's location specific. So you can't take it on online like a virtual thing? Correct. Well, I suppose the, the <laughs> argument yeah. is you could. Yes. You could do 360 tours and virtual this mm. and virtual that, which actually mm. we should and we are sort of moving. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. But the fact is, is the sense of place and the, the physical act of doing something like this is, is obviously different from any other level of interaction you would ever Indeed. have. Mm. And the educational layer of flora, fauna, place, and everything, you know, is such a real life experience. It's full the, sensory. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. yeah. 
So yeah, it's 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 been hard. It's been no harder on. I mean, we're in, I'm in Queenstown in tourism, mm -hmm. the two biggest <laughs> hits in a way. So yeah. we kind of got a double whammy of it. But um, a lot of tourism, you know, West Coast tourism. There's a whole lot of places that are really in a terrible terrible shape right now. Mm. I still believe that the opportunities exist for partnerships, collaboration, and maybe it is with products or things that New Zealand sells mm. to try to... It's actually a good idea. We should pursue this discussion more. Oh, there we go. <laughs> um, yeah, just like actually thinking about what that actually means for New Zealand. Um, and I kind of think there's escalators that are going down and there's escalators that are going mm. up. And you've kind of just got to get on as many escalators going up right now yeah. because mm. everything else is going down. With small gains as well. Because I know you, you, you've iterated, right? You've kind of gone, okay, we can still do this, but what if we do those uh, uh, concerts? Yep. You, uh, mm. So tell Mayu about that. Just so I'm lining you up to tell the story. Yeah, so I mean, we've done a range of things yeah. um, and we've got a couple more things coming. Okay. Um, out of lockdown, we the short story is we found out about New Zealand Music Month. I've always wanted to make have music in the trees so we just did it two weeks out of lockdown we put musicians in every tree house and as you went through you could see a different band or a different musician that was local so they all got a job we paid them for the job um, we created something which was sold out in 48 hours um, got lots of media and it was a whole lot of fun mm. it was a bit of like a, a mini party in a time where everyone else was sort of you know still crying on each other's shoulders actually yeah. mm. um, so we, we've done that which is treehouse sessions um, we've got a whole education stem steam uh, education thing overlay so you can come to ZipTrek and we'll talk about other stuff and mm. you use ZipTrek as the learning experience and we've also launched weekday weddings trying to push demand in places where you don't have weddings mm. elopements mm. are one of those escalators going up yeah so you get on board that escalator hopefully over time um, as people elope more rather than doing big weddings then they get a chance to do it in an unusual way which is what elopements usually are so there's these are both those three products and then um, uh, sort of just released is something that you guys haven't seen yet is um, something I've been working on for about a year and a half which is an augmented reality overlay oh, so cool. we're trying to what I call super storytelling using every mm -hmm. tool you got in the toolbox um, to create meaningful memories um, that relate to place so contextualizing a digital asset like let's say 5% of the environment is a digital asset, but 95% of it's the environment you're in, mm. which is, I think is the most important bit because I'm not interested in virtualizing an experience. I'm interest, interested in creating... Augmenting it. The, augmenting, yeah, yeah the, the experience that we have around us. So you'd be there still experiencing the zip tracking, yes. zip lining, yes. but you'll have something... Probably... Not headset this time. We no. have experimented with headsets. Yes, the uh, Hol HoloLens, HoloLens too, and yeah. Magic Leap. But wow. we've jumped back to... The technology availability cost and characteristics are not up with the capability yeah. what we need right now okay um so we're actually just an ipad experience on the tree decks and this is us just experimenting with using adventure tourism and technology because those two don't traditionally go together mm. testing whether that's something that people are interested in or mm. how it works what's the relationship like gotcha. how do we how do we sell that idea in so the and ipad becomes the lens move. You know, well, then we've got the digital assets that can be ported across when the time is right for the technology, I call it. Okay, like, yeah. My analogy is getting on the ground floor so that we can take the express elevator up mm. when the technology gets past um, the trough of disappointment, which is what the technology really yeah. kind of is at this mm. point in time. Exactly. So it's kind of me deeply going into a whole other thing. Um, but 
the concept is is what opportunities exist for us to, to be the best storytellers that we can be and so digitizing it gets us on one of those escalators going up fast totally I also wondered um, I recently went to this uh, what if what if the city was a theater in Wellington uh, yes. you yeah. know, there's a lot of things happening right with the yeah. French and stuff I just thought um, I don't know what your layout looks like but I'm just imagining in my head what if there was like circus people or like you know yep. like something performance at your place um, and sort of make Queenstown like a theatre? Yeah. That would be so cool. And so we have Street Performer as one of the other ideas. Oh, amazing. Um, amongst the probably about 10 ideas we have. Here's one you really love, food. So yes. we're going to have different food in every tree deck. Oh, my God. Representing so cool. um, a restaurant or a, a chef from a different place or a different thing. So yeah. when you zip line in between the tree decks, how many are there? Oh, well, there's maybe six, depending on how you yeah. look at it. Which yeah. way? So you could do an e- a course on each right? Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. How cool would that be? That's so cool. And so cool. Yeah, like it full makes sensory. it obvious when you said it. Actually, wasn't full sensory until we had food. <laughs> so, so absolutely, and then the representing the brand, the, the last, yeah, You're representing oh. the brands and the people yeah. of our town yeah. or our region. Um, it might be seasonal, Amazing. like bluff oysters, or yeah, totally. Mm. Welling, like I, I bring down Wellington on a plate. That sounds weird. Well, the certain lambs and certain seasons, right? Yeah. So we yeah. do a Hokitika ho- Wild Food Festival yeah. and bring it on on the road. Or well, you could even yeah. do a, like a wine tour, different wines on different stations. As For sure. Well. Oh, they would and love cheese that. And we have to watch when yeah. we have alcohol and adventure. But yes, good oh, point. Of course. Yeah. Make sure you have the spit mm-hmm. in. Bucket. No, so another one. Another one. <laughs> You're supposed to spit it out. <laughs> Brilliant. No, so we have actually talked to breweries missing. about doing a brewery one as well. Right, makes like sense, right? Exactly. So cool. Half a dozen oh, or so. So this, these are great, except for the thing about it is it's kind of, here's my analogy, it's maybe like coming up with a new honey each time you send out a box. It's a lot of work, yeah. right? Yeah, it's so so there's the curation totally. cost, like yeah. the, the time and effort. Just time, yeah. Is, is Relationship huge. management. So th- that means that your value proposition has to be much higher so you can charge a yeah. lot more mm. and or you have to have another funding method like it's sponsored mm. by by x brewery or whatever to make that work yeah. because what we currently have is a story that we all we tell over and over again mm. which is very efficient as a business yeah so, so it's an interesting idea True. but we have to test the business model around it That's it sounds true. very exciting yeah but i mean kiwis would go to queenstown you know that's like a destination right now right so yep. is that your target now? Well, so, so in terms of um, what I call Zip Trek as an outdoor venue, the proposal is that it becomes an idea for all tourism activities all around the New Zealand. And that, for example, the Wellington Theatre, as an example, I'm not sure what the name of it was, but, but is happening all around the country simultaneously, like New Zealand Music Month. Mm. But the venues happen to be tourism ones, which are underutilised at this point in time, and so, therefore, uh, handshaking within our industry, whether it's food or performance, to be able to make its assets usable in a very different way. Mm. So it's a concept which hasn't really taken off yet, yeah. but I'd love I for see. it to happen. It's thinking about your resources in a different way, right, and applying them in different areas. Yep. So yeah. it's yeah. asset utilisation. Yeah. So it's IP, people, or physical assets. It might be a whole lot of other things outside those things. How do you reassign them? into a way which is what I call super or mega efficient. Mm. Um, how do we use, how do we, you know, classically, how do you make money at night when you're sleeping? Yeah. Um, how, do you, how do you run an operation seven days a week? How do you make it 
how do you use your bus that you're not using over there? Mm. True. Wonderful. So that's your COVID experience. Could I ask about yours? My COVID experience was um, very fortunately, um, when there's some um, flu or COVID as well, a lot of Japanese people thought it's a good idea to consume honey. Mm-hmm. So right. there was actually a lot of demand coming through customers, very fortunately. Um, but because our, ch- our chain is so large and so long, we just weren't sure when we were ever going to shut down. So it was really scary. Um, if you there's mean there's so many from destination? Yeah, all the way from to, beekeepers to source, to or the other way around, from source to destination exactly. of the purchase. Yeah. Exactly. There's yeah. so many people, or it's just so long in terms of it creates, it takes a long time to create that product? Uh, a bit of both. So, for example, okay. if there's um, someone who contracted COVID at, say, um, shipping chain, mm. everything stops. Right, okay. You know? So, yeah, now, so yes. There's a risk of having that as well. Yeah. But um, fortunately, a lot of people needed Manuka honey, mm. which is really, yeah, it's, it was a bless for us. But so demand's gone up. Demand's gone up. And you can um, change your supply a little bit to adjust for that increased demand? Yes, yeah. So we yeah. we do always a forecast. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, yeah, that worked out really well because I think, um, yeah, that was coming towards our summer. So that was in March, right? And that was coming mm. towards Japanese summer. And that's where it usually is a dip. But um, because of the COVID, it went up. Uh-huh. Went up. Um, yeah, so it was really... Mm. Fascinating. And my team, obviously, like we all work from home. Um, sorry, well, we work, all work from home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so including myself, um, I used to go to co-working space. Mm-hmm. But now um, we were all working from home. I was actually in Germany at that time in Berlin. I was doing a, a working holiday over there. Mm-hmm. I only came back in October, but um, oh. yeah, so it didn't. It wasn't a big change for us and for my Japanese team. They loved it. They loved staying at home. Is that right? Did they usually come together then? Homebound? No, they, they, no, they just like to right. stay at why home. Why do they love it? They just. I'm interested in why. Yeah. Um, do, I, they, do they have big commute commutes or? Uh, I think they just. I don't know. I, I don't want to say for the whole nation, but I mm-hmm. think yeah, a lot of the yeah. people are quite conservative to the point that they don't want to go outside to like say hi to people or like even if you, you know, um, even if you spot a friend on the street, a lot of the times people just like look down on the street and pretend that they didn't see you. Um, oh. uh, yeah, it's really interesting. I'm not entirely sure why. Mm-hmm. Um, just a nation of introverts. A lot essentially. of, yeah, a lot of. Yeah, okay. yeah, and there was obviously there's different people as well, but mm. uh, my team loved staying at home. Okay. Yeah, and coming out of COVID for you now, in terms of like obviously Japan has been the one flattening the curve and been up and down a lot, mm. and there's still breakouts in Tokyo, as I understand it and stuff. But um, I know that again regionally, they're they're not doing national things; they're doing regional in Japan, yeah. as I understand it, their yeah. approach. Yeah, regional. Right. Um, and also, but Japan is under a state of emergency. So that means okay. you should stay at home, but it's not a lockdown. Huh. Yeah. Okay. It's very So many different nations approaching it so many different oh, ways. No. Yeah. Yep. Oh, man. I don't want to go in there. Japanese governments are... Okay. I'm not a big fan. Okay. But, well, that's yeah. interesting. <laughs> you have so much... 
you have so much insight on both. Yeah, you know, both yeah, New Zealand exactly. government's approach because you live here, yes, and Japanese yeah. government yeah. approach because your parents are there and yes, I know, yeah. and your team and, team. and uh, the base of your operations as well. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask why you're in in Germany? Oh yeah, of course. Um, so we left um, before COVID. Mm -hmm. That was 2018. What? June or whatever. Yeah. Um, I wanted to do, you know, go outside of New Zealand because I've been in New Zealand for like the last 14 years mm -hmm. yep. and um, I wanted to travel to work somewhere else mm -hmm. and so was my partner mm -hmm. and we decided that um, Berlin actually, not Germany, but Berlin was a really good place to be. Mm -hmm. uh, one, it's quite an international city. Mm -hmm. um, two, it's really close from Scandinavia, which I'm really fascinated to learn more about. Mm -hmm. um, and three, uh, startup was quite popular mm -hmm. over in right, Berlin. Yeah. They were spending a lot of money on startup. Mm -hmm. My partner's in startup field. Mm -hmm. So yeah, all of that together and obviously traveling, you know, we mm -hmm. wanted to travel around Europe. Yeah, so we were there for like one whole year until obviously COVID hit and we thought, oh gosh, what are we gonna do? Um, but our visa was expiring anyway in September last mm -hmm. year. So we just came home. Mm -hmm. We stuck it out there, didn't you? For we the first six months of the For COVID. six months, yeah. Yeah. In an apartment. Because I find this interesting because you, because your background in Japan and in New Zealand um, the, the, is, is great. You have this deep knowledge of both nations and therefore it's perfect to bring a product from one to the other. One of the challenges then is if the market goes funny, either in New Zealand or, or Japan, mm. then your business is potentially in a lot of trouble. Fortunately, in this case, it's been okay and in fact going pretty well. Um, but it sort of leads to the idea of like diversification totally of what right. you do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, you're right. Yeah, so in the next um, five years or so, this is a big um, decision that I made during lockdown that I want to take over my uh, mum and dad's company. So I want to take the lead on um, the company, mm -hmm. and uh, obviously talked to DK and said, "Hey, I'm going to do this," <laughs> and he goes, "Okay, what's your 500 years plan?" And I was like. <laughs> 500 years plan. Okay, let's get started on that. So wow. you're absolutely right. I think um, I'm in the process of thinking how can we diverse um, the portfolio. Mm -hmm. And also, I don't know if you guys heard, but about um, Japanese regulation on honey from New Zealand. That was a big roar oh, about a month ago with a glyphosate. Glyphosate. Glyphosate, thank you. Mm. It was and detected. Yeah, yeah. Which is a big ongoing challenge for New Zealand, actually. Like, yes. it should be yeah. banned now. Just mm. outright, because it would solve yeah. so many problems. because well, the rest of the world has also done the same. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why we're hanging out not yeah. doing that. Your opinion about... Oh, absolutely. It should not be used at all. And rounds up and stuff, people know and use it, you know, in your every backyard. Day. Every day. Yeah, And that's day. killing bees. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. It's, it's <laughs> like, quite unbelievable, yeah, actually. absolutely. In my opinion. No. But also at the same time, Japanese government have been really harsh on New Zealand honey. Yep. And it's not for Manuk honey, but New Zealand honey in general. Okay. Um, and yeah, I don't know why they did what they did. I feel like it, there's some voting issues behind that. So it's more political than... Okay, could be. Sure yeah. it, it's, I mean, you're not technically competing with anything inside Japan, really, are you? Or well, is, it, no, is it not really? Not really, but I think some people might want to protect domestic um, honey, which is beautiful. Japanese honey mm. are really beautiful as well. Mm. And it's quite expensive, um, mm -hmm. so it should be protected. But Japan has a, unfortunately, history of protecting the country mm -hmm. and shutting down the borders. Mm -hmm. right. 
to every foreigners or mm -hmm. foreign things, objects. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the reason why we don't have Panadol in Japan. We have got something very similar to Panadol, but not Panadol as a brand yeah. or Strepsils. You can find that any other part of the, you know, Asia, not in Japan. So it's very protective country. That's yeah. Right. yeah. Going back just briefly to the Manuka honey, was there a decision to, I know there was a personal story relating to your mum about using that Manuka honey, but as they're talking about diversification, there's so many different types of honey, especially yes. in New Zealand as well. And we've got the Chatham Islands honey as well, which you haven't heard about, please do. They've got one of the best bee uh, populations out there that could even save the rest of the planet because they're so healthy, these bees out there, and they're so isolated. They haven't been hit by anything, which is wonderful as a story. Um, but I, I was just wondering about diversification into different honey products because totally. it can make honey into different things, right? Yeah. Honey yeah. infused chocolate, for example. Oh, yes, it's Do it. so divine. Think about Sean, you know, <laughs> Honey Lab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, there's um, different Monica honey mixed with different stuff as well. Okay. For example, hemp is a big uproar right now. Yeah, it's uh, the other day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you? Yeah, Monica yeah. with? Down in Queenstown. Oh my God, it's so like, cool. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It's, it's in what, what form does that taste? <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, just the honey. I just had. I just had it. Right. You okay. know, have a little teaspoon in the morning type thing. It's hemp, manuka, blend. I don't know who's quantifying whether it was actually that it was in it. It tasted <laughs> like it might have sus, like Something hemp in else. it. Like it, right. you had that. Yeah. I don't know how you describe that flavor. Just but, hemp um, flavor. Yeah. Organic. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, how do you describe yeah. flavours? Yeah. Um, I'm not the person to do it. Anyway, it did taste like it. Anyway, it was, yeah. uh, it was good. Yeah. It was really, it was really good. Yeah. Yeah. So do you Have you played with that? Like that? Actually, yeah. We're, got... we're thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. We're in the process of okay. talking to a couple of people. Mm. Yeah. And Monica with, for example, collagen, you know, a lot of Asian female are really into collagen. Oh, okay. right. Or Monica with royal jelly, for example. Oh, yeah. Or with lemon, blackcurrant. Propolis, oh, it's very, very good. <laughs> <laughs> it's delicious. So, so you become a chemist, sorry. Yeah, no, that's what I was <laughs> going to ask, yeah. essentially. You, you would then create yeah. a range of brand products. Yeah, yeah. But under yeah. your brand, one brand, yes. now it's yeah. this with something, this with something yeah. else. Yeah, and also not only Monica Honey, we've got olive oil yeah. um, oh, yeah, from another beautiful that. supplier up in, up in North, and mm. um, you know, Propolis and other different bee products as well. Um, yeah, so we've got a little diverse portfolio, I guess. A tiny, mm. small portfolio. So we do. From small acorn, acorns and all that. Uh, in other words, as I say, in like small acorns, oak trees grow. Mm. Um, so, yeah. it's uh, So, in terms of your decision to explore taking over your family business, that's that's a I know that's a big decision for you. Mm. And um, what what tipped you over the edge? What was the the straw that broke the camel's back saying, yes, I'm definitely going to do that because I know you've been sat with it for a while. Yeah. Um, I think the main thing for me was I wanted to keep the value my, my mom and dad have built. Um, and it's such a beautiful yeah. value and it's something amazing and I didn't want to drop that. Mm. Um, and mm -hmm. initially I thought it was just, just too difficult for both Japan and New Zealand to work, especially in terms of culture and... There was a lot of problem, right? Um, but I sort of 
since we've been working on this issue, both my parents and I, for the past years or so, we kind of managed to find a way how to go about that. Mm. So I'm slowly starting to say, okay, well, maybe it's possible to do. And also I just, you know, I wanted to keep going with the legacy that Mm. they built. Yeah. That's what we're all building, right? Towards something that will last, I suppose. Thinking about your zip track as well. You probably got an idea that's going to sustain beyond you in some format, you'd hope. Yeah. Yeah. I I was thinking about it now that I have a daughter, but, um, I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily think that it needs to. I just think that it needs to continuously add value to something greater than my back pocket Mm. for whatever period that does, you know? And so if it's not doing that, then it shouldn't be around. Yeah. um, I I suppose I like the idea that we can disappear and nothing, you won't even notice. Yeah, that footprint idea, yeah be there and I was walking around the course the other day and it's I was just thinking imagine if we weren't here mm-hmm. um, there would be a lot of improvements to the land we're on and then the tree houses will be gone so you you won't even actually be able to tell mm-hmm. um, except in the positive like that somebody would come and do some gardening basically because <laughs> um, there's a lot of trees we've planted like right mm-hmm. yeah it's like 5,000 trees and they're really taken wow. off now it's amazing oh my gosh um, what was the reasoning behind you planting so many trees? Uh, well, it's part of ecological re- regeneration. Regeneration, yeah. yeah. So we, we've cut down a lot of wildings, and we're trying to connect areas of forest that are effectively little islands of of of, of retained, nature highways. Retained, I think yeah. So you connect them together. Yeah. And create more area and less perimeter. Nice. And they yeah. become more robust to attack from wilding species, basically. So that was, I mean, and then there's a, there's a, there's the ecological value in birds and everything else, and then mm-hmm. there's obviously the carbon stuff. But the carbon stuff's like a, a, a quadruple bonus, really, more mm-hmm. than the driver. But then the birds, obviously, with the flowers and flowers with the bees and the bees with the pollination, and then that's the cycle. It's right? Yeah, it's part of the whole ecosystem yeah. thing. Yeah, it's, and it's it's good work for us to be doing on our land to make mm-hmm. it look like gardening, like it looks mm. much better with it yeah. and there's birds that come in because of it. And so it's in our best interest to do so as well. Yeah, I'm not saying sense. it doesn't. I remember a while ago, this is kind of a, a fun idea more than anything, and I don't know where you, you've got to it. A while ago, we were discussing taking your zip line in, into an urban setting and your, your ideas for that, even here in Wellington. Imagine it as a transport, transport system. Exactly, right? So not just fun little thing to do. It's now a a, a reasonable transport system. Is that still something in your brain that tickles you? Well, so, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's exciting because it's exciting. Mm. I mean, no one says that's not exciting. (laughs) Um, In terms of, like, the us doing it or someone else doing it Mm. or it happening is a whole other thing. I I suppose I wasn't talking about... I was saying that's the potential for it. It wouldn't be yep. through us, probably. Mm. Um, in terms of zipping uh, recreationally uh, as a tourism product through cities, absolutely every bone in my body wants to do it tomorrow. <laughs> um, the concern is the logistics of doing so. Yeah. And I'd have to work with a city council and the people of that town to make sure that we could do that in a way which was adding value and not doing anything but. Mm. Um, so and that's a big issue around privacy, 
um, around noise, um, around just general disruption. Um, I don't. I don't think that we don't. We have any issues that we can't actually deal with in the appropriate place. Gotcha. Um, but. Um, other people may have other opinions about that, and that's fine. So I think that everyone will have an opinion about something mm. in the city. <laughs> um, if I was to put a train line up in the city, they would have a, an issue, but if you're having yeah. something like this. So there's a whole lot of things to how it operates with, to see whether that would actually, how much impact that would actually have as well. Work, yeah. mm. But when you think about a cable, is much better than a train track and, and or a road. Mm. Um, but you're also talking about much lower numbers of people you can move. Yeah, exactly. Potentially. Yeah. I there's a whole lot of things to that had fun with that idea, yeah, zipping it, between buildings and an urban setting. And I was thinking like, I mean, I mean, so Japan bad. would be an amazing place to do it, an yeah, unbelievable I place. Remember, imagine going through Kyoto or, oh, or like, yeah. I, I can imagine like a big, the big city, big urban uh -huh. Spider-Man experience, yeah, for sure. So but then I can also imagine <laughs> other, other versions yeah. of it, whether it's through a parkland. People always go, oh, there's a parkland here and there's this, that. It's like, yeah, that's cool, but I just want to go down Main Street, really. Mm. Um, uh, across to uh, and over the top of the monument, away from the monument, so that mm. I'm not offending people and all that sort of stuff. Right. And I think there's ways to do it, but yeah, yeah, maybe in future we'll I'll find the right city to do that. Maybe. Well, is that experience in the Fremont Center? Is it in yeah. Vegas? Yep, in Vegas. From one it. end of the mall to the other, if you ever visit mm. it, it's weird because you go in and it's just like an open mall, but it's a long mall, so you can right. see from one end to the other. Uh, inside. And then you suddenly notice people s screaming above you, and you're like looking up, and there's I think four or two yeah, zip lines yeah. that goes from one end to the other. Oh, that's crazy! And, and that what you can do, you can yeah. go up and zip line from one end to the, the other, and it's like a quarter of a mile. Or maybe so that's probably the most famous one, and there's one in Dubai as well. Over Is there? Built, in built oh, over yeah. buildings? Oh right. Um, sort of. It's kind of a more open open area, and we already do this. Just like Zip Trick, my business partners do this at Vancouver Winter Olympics mm. and Super Bowl events and other stuff. So we already do urban zip lining, but they're temporary. Yeah. Yeah. So for example, Brisbane is looking like they might get 2032 Olympics. We could do it all through Brisbane's cityscape. That would be amazing. Like Brisbane would be a great mm. city because there's a river as well. Yes. And especially yeah. if you did a temporary, but I'm more interested in doing permanent as well. So, mm. so that would be another discussion. That's 2032. That's a long time. Oh, right how now. exciting! But um, these things take 10 years to get yeah. going, and and the the, the true example of um, unbelievable tourism is the Sydney Bridge climb, really, which is the, one of the most famous stories that took 20 years to do, to get to to walk on top of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, wow. um, and they had to cut through one of the towers, like through the stone to ah, make the walkway through right? and all sorts of stuff like that. And, wow. they, and they said, you know, for 20 years he got told no and then he made it happen. So that's an amazing story of mm. resilience okay. to try and do something which ha is, is an unbelievable experience. Yeah, well Japan have a um, roller coaster that goes through a building. Yeah, I've seen Tokyo. that as well. So I'd like to zip through a building too. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty cool. Yeah, I wonder cool. if there's a gap there. Yeah. <laughs> we could get, we we could get a zip line through too. If there's a roller coaster going through <laughs> it. What city, what city is that actually? I think it's in Tokyo. Oh, yeah. oh sorry, uh, Yokohama maybe. Yokohama, yeah. Near, near Tokyo. Yeah, I, sh I need to study J Harbor. Japan cities more. Yeah. My business partner's wife is Japanese, so she, he oh, cool. spends a lot of time in Japan, so it's kind of nice. his territory to look at that. Oh, I love Japan. It sounds like so they're quirky. open to doing wild and wacky things. Yeah, yeah. Or Vegas. Vegas is just does stupid True. things. Yeah, yeah, but that's sort of the thing, stuff. isn't it? That's yeah. why I don't want to do that. If I yeah, I know you want to situate it somewhere else. Yeah. 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 Uh, can we change tax and have a discussion about events and experiences? Yeah. 
just because I want to, because I've got two people around the table who also do, do events like me and have done and are still in experience building and product experience building. So it's kind of all aligned, right, and story and things. Um, by the time this goes out, it will be public knowledge that we've cancelled TEDx Wellington this year. Um, so, yeah, in the next couple of days, it'll be public um, for lots of different reasons, not just the growing liabilities of running large-scale events in a COVID environment, even though we were full of hope for what New Zealand has done in this elimination strategy. I think it's becoming harder and harder to justify a 2,000-person event uh, here in the capital um, and take on all those liabilities as a board, as a charitable board going forward. So I've had a couple of uh, nights really struggling with the team and the board and in terms of making this decision, not struggling with them, just struggling getting to the decision being made. Um, but the TEDx experience for me is one of the most richest of my lives. And I know you've been involved in TEDx Queenstown. And uh, yesterday we had Caesar here. Mm, uh, yeah, Caesar is now the head, sorry, chief executive of the Wellington Cable Car Company. But he was TEDx Queenstown original licensee before this young man took it over for the next few years. So it's like batting and stuff like that going on. Um, But you've been involved in TEDx in terms of an attendee as well. And you've been amazingly supportive of my endeavors as well as just turning up and and going to them. In terms of events and, and TEDx specifically, I'd love to just have a chat about that. What do you think is, as, as, what has it meant for us, but also what's it going to mean in the future when so many things are turning virtual? Mm-hmm. Like I'm still raw about cancelling TEDx Wellington, so I'm a bit uh, yeah, about it, but I also can be reflective of going, wow, what have we done with that just simple format? Oh, I can imagine so many people would be so gutted to hear mm. that. And I so I really feel for you. I'm Thank so you. sorry. Mm. That's a big decision to make. It was. Last night was a tough one. Yeah, so, 100%. Hence why I'm looking tired. That's my excuse anyway. <laughs> but thank you. Yeah. But equally, you've had a, a big decision to make uh, coming up recently, but we'll come back to that first, all right? But just to focus on TEDx, I can say it's, you know, I, I've never regretted doing what I've been doing with it. Um, but I want to talk about your TEDx Queenstown experience and then TEDx Scott Base. TEDx Queenstown, why did you get involved? Uh, so I was involved with Caesar in the beginning. Yeah. And uh, we, there's a group of us really who started it. He just happened to be that guy that <laughs> fell on the responsibility. Someone so, has to um, put their hand up. <laughs> and um, so we did that for four years plus. Mm. Um, and then it was, a, it was a great experience at a great time for, yeah. for me, for our town, because we didn't have anything like that. There's a lot more now. Mm. in our town and I felt like it was completely missing. Everyone's like, oh, when are you going back and doing it again? They don't realise how much work it takes <laughs> um, or that you work for free. Um, yeah. um, but I never, absolutely like you, never regretted a moment because it was so rewarding on so mm. many different levels. So many people pay lots of money for professional development. I'm like, go volunteer, do something <laughs> and you'll get the real experience so right, and, and, yeah. ca- and, and undertake the real risk actually of, of yeah. doing it in the real world. Um, as opposed to theorizing about it in a, in a course. Um, and that's nothing wrong with courses, I think they're great too. But um, so it was, it was great. And I, the other element for me is the people side of it, the type of people mm-hmm. that I met, which was so ridiculously aspirational. Um, and that's, that's been good for me because I, I get excited by that. I get excited by yeah. 
a diverse range of people mm -hmm. from a diverse background and with a, totally. with a, maybe a completely different worldview yeah. um, that are just going all at it like their mm -hmm. lives depend on it. And it's, it's pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. So both from the TEDx network inside New Zealand and then also as we met, as we met people overseas um, mm -hmm. from the TEDx network all around the world and you know, you're talking to someone in Myanmar who's having a lot more problems now yeah. who's just about to launch their first event and you've got um, you know, people in small towns in you know, places that we've never maybe heard of yep. mm -hmm. um, that you're like, wow, you're going to do this thing and it's, and it's a huge thing for your community to get behind you and do that. Anyway, so it was inspirational. But just to linger on that, uh, you know, that experience of going overseas and we've shared that twice, I think, at TED Active, mm -hmm. which we, cool. we both went to Whistler. Uh, which was aligned to the TED conference. And what they do is they set up another conference that runs at the same time as TED, the big TED, as we call it, uh, but streams in the content to this smaller conference. And usually the smaller conference is made up of TEDx organizers plus ones, you know? And, and, and translators. Translators, yeah, and, and all the other people, people around the events. All yeah. Stuff, yeah, all of that. So you're in, in company, international company mm. of people who are, like you just said, doers are hungry to be aspirational or try something different and are putting on 100 person events in a shed because they don't have the resources and access to things that we would have access and you're chatting to them and they're equally as excited about bringing bringing the world to their ideas and vice versa in their local communities and i think for me that is the crux of the idea is using a leveraging a platform like ted to help amplify stories that wouldn't be out there, would never have had that leverage before. And from a participant point of view, to get exposed to that um, excitement and passion, mm. you could feel it, you know, just being there. And every single year, there's always something new, there's always something amazing. There was kittens involved, you know, <laughs> you, can't, you can't go wrong with that. Can't go wrong with that. And the themes is different every single time. So it's just yeah. worth paying that amount of money to mm. go and get the experience. Um, and as participants too, we get to have deep chats mm -hmm. around something that you would never even talk about. And that's where I met my partner as well. Oh, really? 2016 that yeah. would have been, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was, you were that, that one, the trust one. Oh, yep. yep. The, next one the trust? Yep. Oh, that was very cool. Yep. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah, it was amazing. Loved it. Mm. So good. So. But yeah, bringing together of a wider, now we're talking from an organizational perspective, but you're right, the people who turn up at these types of events, mm. and you would have experienced, and I attended every one of TEDx Queenstown, I'm happy to say, because I really loved what you put on, but I loved the people who went as, men, mm. as much as the curated people yes. on stage, yeah. mm -hmm. the yes. people who self-curate by turning up and buying that ticket. And you wouldn't come to a TEDx experience if you're not madly curious, yes. you don't lean into conversations, you don't mind meeting people you don't know mm. or are completely different to you. And, and you have no expert knowledge in the area in which you're now talking to them about. It's fun, it's engaging, right? It stretches you. And that's why I equally love the participation side. The people mm. who turn up are amazing. Mm. Absolutely incredible. Mm. I had amazing chats. Good. Really deep chats, you know? Mm. That engages your soul. And it's funny because you go straight into really deep conversations and you don't have to, you kind of yeah. miss out the, hey, how are you going? Where do you work? Yeah, totally. You do, yeah. yeah. yeah because yeah. you've got something straight away yeah. to talk about, right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. Did you, did, 
just come out, yeah, yeah, what do you think about like death then exactly. and funerals That's and stuff right. and yeah, yeah. designing your own funeral and like straight into yeah, like, have you written oh, the will? okay, we don't know you, but we're going to be talking <laughs> yeah. about my death yeah. now. Brilliant. Thank you yeah, very yeah, much. No, That's what mm. I love is to leverage again the, the stuff that's happening on stage into a highly personal experience with two individuals. Yeah. That's amazing. But I want to linger on TEDx just one little bit longer just to talk about TEDx Scott Base. Yeah, so on the, on the strength of the relationships that are made throughout New Zealand, you know, particularly with Kyla Colvin, TEDx mm-hmm. Christchurch, former licensee, and she... Mother to us all. Mother to us all. Yes. And really kind of, community. like, I think that was a, my first event, a TEDx Christchurch, my first TEDx event. Okay. My second one was yours. And TEDx Tiaro. Yeah, TEDx Tiaro, and then you, and you invited stage. us on stage <laughs> the day after we got our license, <laughs> um, which was a bit of a shock. But um, anyway, it was a great experience. So anyway, Kyla said, I've got something unusual. I've been trying to do this sort of thing for a while. We've got an occasion, and we're talking to Antarctica New Zealand about doing a celebration for their birthday of Scott Base. Um, we're doing TEDx down there, and we need a small number of people to go down there, so you need, everyone needs to be super multi multi-tools basically mm. so it was only a four-person team which is pretty crazy when you think about it oh my obviously lots of voluntary Still time and we there's lots yeah. of really smart people on base yeah. so it's like okay so we need four people behind the camera and blah, 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 like who can hold a camera <laughs> so I think, well you know they're, they're very smart people down there so we mm. weren't so worried about it so we work for eight nine months um to put together an event which we were, were hoping to live stream but you know, Google and Facebook satellites didn't really work out, so we ended up bringing the content back in a box. And less than a week later, we did a quick edit and then dropped it straight online. Oh, we um, ran four um, four separate timed events over a 24-hour period for different time zones. And I'm not sure if it's 20 something, maybe 30 viewing parties around the world yeah. on, on every continent, including Antarctica. Oh my gosh. Um, um, which we organised through the TEDx network. So we basically could go to the TEDx network and say, who wants to organise a live viewing party, f- party for Antarctica? <laughs> and so a few people put their hands up and they organised events in Hong Kong or, or in, you know, we had a couple in Africa and obviously the States and Australia and all that sort of stuff. So, so it was an unusual event. We got to bring our talent down literally in a C-150, um, like one of those monster planes. Mm-hmm. And we flew in a couple of days early and we spent a couple of days cleaning up at the end. We had to make a stage. Uh, it was like a room like this, um, a big open space, which they store the tents in. Right, okay. We cleared out the tents. Yes, put them to one side. Room, right? <laughs> yeah. And then we put some chairs in. We, we borrowed a stage from the US base, yeah. like a sections of stage. Yeah. We got an artist who was down there, happened to be down there earlier to make the backdrop. Mm. Um, then we built the whole place in, well, Isaac Spedding, who's the other person, another person involved, he built the whole thing in Google SketchUp. So he could work out lenses and cord lengths and everything like that. So because you couldn't bring it. And then he, we basically installed it as we designed it from a theoretical thing, event and then recorded and brought it back. It was, it was an unusual experience and that's kind of why I didn't want to go back to TEDx and do another one because I was kind of like, that's kind of a bit of a highlight. Yeah. I'm not sure if I want to. Go anywhere from there? You peaked. Yeah. I kind of peaked. <laughs> peaked a bit early, and then I yeah. had to Not at all. Just yeah. jump out there. Well, you did three before that, right? TEDx Queenstown yeah. as the licensee, yes. and one with Caesar's licensee. Yeah. It's not like you did just a couple. You yeah, put no, the hours in. And then TEDx Scott Base for me was a pinnacle. You're right. Wow. Yeah. It was unusual. And, you know, 
it, a massive privilege to get flown down there. It costs a lot of money and it's a lot of effort. But my personal view on a, as a, as a traveller is I kind of always wanted to go to Antarctica yeah. with a purpose, with something, right. a reason to be there, not yeah. just as a tourist. Now, I didn't get to see much at all, even though we stayed up till midnight every night working. I didn't get to see that much. But for me, I felt like there was a little, a little small contribution to the Antarctic deep vision of humanity wow. totally. and the Antarctic Treaty and all that sort of stuff, mm. which is just oh, amazing. Incredible. So I learned a lot about a continent in a short amount of time as well. Yeah. Yeah, we held one of those live viewing parties up in here in and the city. And yours was fun. Yeah. It was like a lot of fun, actually. It was. We held it in Victoria University's, one of their campus uh, viewing, uh, sorry, lecture hall, sorry. Uh, but yeah, the Antarctic center up there as well, or the connection built some tents up. Yeah, so yeah, it's got tents like proper. That's right. Yeah, we had wow. the the old canvas uh, orange tents. No, they're, they're not old. They use them still. What? <laughs> that's what they use. So that's the shape that's the best because that's what that's what we stayed in. So we did one night one overnight training thing there. And we, on we, the ice? Yeah, on the ice. That's part of it. So, wow, I'm okay. trying to keep this short, but uh, we, we had to get training because I I'm not, can't recall what it's called. It's a special like outdoor training, right? Mm -hmm. And how to live in this environment. And the idea is if you go off the base, you could actually die, right? It's like the moon. If you go too far and break your leg, you're in trouble, yeah. right? You have to bring a radio, you have to sign in, you have to know the conditions, you have to check the conditions. Blah, blah, blah. So you have to do outdoor training before you can get outside the perimeter. Wow. So we did a night of outdoor training, which is part of the experience. And you stay in those tents. So those tents are just sticks or pieces of wood with yeah. material around. And it's the best for wind. Because wind is like, you can't just have a dome tent there. It'll just get knocked over. Okay. So, so they actually still use them with the little door. But it was a perfect night when we were there. And I said, to, I said excuse me, you know how we brought these tents? Do we have to stay in them? It's a really nice night. They're like, well, you can stay outside if you want. So I'm like, okay, I'm totally going to sleep under the stars. No stars. It's, it's daylight the whole time. Okay. <laughs> so we put, slept God, on sunscreen. Really? Yeah, we dug ourselves masks. a hole, so you're out of the wind, with a little wall, like a half meter wall. <laughs> and I was like, guys, are you going to do this? like, yeah. So two of the other guys got <laughs> in the hole with me. We put our sunscreen on. You can imagine the other guys, look at those fools. <laughs> and it was just an experience to sleep oh, under wow. the yeah. stars in Antarctica. That's so amazing. that's what we did. Wow. No, I mean, you did that. That was great story. Well, <laughs> apart from those challenges that you have had, what are the biggest challenges that you had as a TEDx organizers? One, if you were to share. Ooh. God, there's so many. The roller <laughs> deck is bed. going so through my brain. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, so um, many challenges no, yeah. because yeah. as the licensee, the way the license work, you have to have a person to, f to blame. <laughs> Ted has to issue a license to a person. Oh, right. They then build out the team, and then the person takes on all the rules and the governance set down by Ted. And I suppose the depth of that is quite challenging before you even start. Once you get your head around it, it's kind of fun, but it also feels really challenging constantly then when you're working with the team and they're coming up with ideas and you go, you can't do that because of Ted rules. <laughs> you can't do that because of Ted rules. Like, well, and then partners and sponsors come in and go, hey, can we do that? And we go, can't do that, Ted rules. Mm. <laughs> so in some ways it's great, but also it's really challenging at the beginning just to get your head around that. I see. That's the first yeah, thing I would say. Um, yeah, and, and I suppose additionally to that, I think that the, the hardest bit was actually selling in the idea of what a TEDx event is. Selling who? 
Uh, well, probably to partners. Okay. Um, because it is a, it is a not-for-profit and there's yeah. very specific rules around how you engage with those partners. Um, it's also this idea of you pointed out the experience um, and that's what we'd hope that everyone would say about their experiences. It was perfect um, yeah. in a way. Um, but it's, it's, it's the idea of curation of an audience. So in a normal mm. event, you normally, in a normal commercial event, you get some headline speakers that have a big name. You mm -hmm. draw in people and they passively watch. They pay some money, chunk out some money, and they passively watch somebody and then they go home. Right? That's not our intent. Maybe nope. not our intent in Wayne with the TX event. Nope. Is to not necessarily have famous people, mm -hmm. maybe a couple of them highlight things, but to bring out people that have what should be famous stories mm. and to give them a, a platform for doing that, uh, for talking about their story, um, to express their passion for something and then get people deeply engaged in that and hopefully give that idea life. So for me, it's not just mm. about a very passive, like, I, I hold knowledge and then you take the knowledge and you go home, but there's this big mix-up of I'm going to discover people that should, probably could have been in the audience before and then make these people work really hard, the, the, the audience, to try and engage those people. Indeed. Mm -hmm. So yeah. for me, it's like a, a very big mix of people and trying to wow. curate and put that together and being, being effective in doing that because you can obviously be unsuccessful at doing so and then getting the partners to support that as a concept and idea is a whole wrap that, that is, is difficult because it's quite different from any other event and, and every event sure. person would say that about their own event probably. It's a lovely way to segment it. And I would say as well, the partners and sponsors being the foundation rather than the overtop, I would describe yep. it as. There's a big problem there because of the literacies in New Zealand around events are quite traditional. Mm. So when you do go to a partner, it's like, oh, okay, so... Yeah, we'd love to support this TEDx Wellington, for example. Um, can we put up our chief executive to speak? Because there's an expectation that if a commercial entity is supporting an event of some description, they can find or, or they can have stage time. That's an expectation. Again, with TED rules, you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> and all these other things. <laughs> that it's kind of like, I say that's kind of like advertorial. Yeah, mm. yeah. <laughs> but it's a literacy, right? But when yeah. I was back in the UK, there was already an accelerated literacy about, yeah, if I'm supporting you, I know I can't control your editorial uh, because I understand it's been a while, around for a while. So New Zealand is still playing catch up with the event formats, I think. And still to this day, I, uh, I attend events where people have been chosen for their title, not for their oratory skills or their mm. communications and storytelling or even passion. They shouldn't be the ones on stage. It's just they got but they're because of the dollar. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. It's fun to think about. Thanks. Dom. Can I go back to one of your other comments about sure. the eventing and the future of events? Yeah, or, yeah, please. So, because yeah, this. I'm, I'm really, so as I've technically been out of events, but I sort of got back in, whole another story, but w the idea of a physical event appeals to most people mm. more than a digital event, for, to most people. But there's obvious characteristics that a digital event has that are, a physical event can't have. Like, I could have speakers, we talked about it before, I could have speakers in Portugal mm. or, uh, or in Antarctica or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Um, or I might have audience in all of those places as well. Mm. And or I could repeat it and have uh, mm. social support, a um, whole lot of questions and answers around that. Mm. Um, there's a whole lot of characteristics which are, aren't, are not able to happen 
um, with a physical versus digital. The other thing that doesn't affect me so much is the whole, uh, and I believe it's huge, is the opportunity for introverts in a digital mm. event. Mm. And I, uh, you so could argue it's, it's more opportunity for introverts. You could argue it's less opportunity for introverts, but there's a lot more opportunity for equity or inclusion, I think, if you can design your digital event like that. And then the other element is, is how does hybridization of events work? Mm. And how do you do it so that the digital citizen is not a second class citizen? Because that's in my view of what currently happens is any hybrid event basically has, if you want to sign in, here's the link, there's the link, see you later. <laughs> and it's kind of like, if you'd like to watch through the peephole <laughs> and got a very bad picture, mm -hmm. then you can kind of. One camera instead of cutting yeah, yeah. through, yeah. So, so for me, it, hybridization takes a, a whole, almost another team of people to design that experience. So you've got the physical, yeah. um, you know, guest experience design, the digital guest experience design, and then the hybridization. Because how does the physical team, people in the room, appreciate the people, the digital people, are yeah. getting, and mm. vice versa? Anyway, so this is a whole another thing, and I think that. I'm glad that the whole world's eyes are open to the opportunities that yeah. exist in digitization. Mm. But we have to think about the fundamental characteristics that those things have and work towards them Indeed. for the event that you're running. Yeah. Mm. And so it was interesting to see Ted do the changeover. They've done a lot of experimentation mm -hmm. with what they did in the last TED event. Yes. Um, TEDx Sydney did some interesting things. Mm -hmm. We've got teams with Together Mode. There's a whole lot of things that are happening now which are making it more meaningful as an experience, mm -hmm. as opposed to, I can do it, but it's just pretty much terrible, Yeah. which is the previous way. Or like you it. say, it's an add-on, and or it's just now taking the add-on and adding another camera. We're going to live stream it anyway, and not really thinking about the experience through the lens. Because I, I think it's just different. That's, if I can it's, highlight and yeah. separate it out. It's, it's a hybrid, but you've got to separate them out first to understand the characteristics. Then you've got to figure out the overlap that is complementary, not reductive. It's got to be additive, yes. right? Because the overlap could reduce as well as augment. So you've got to figure out where the emphasis is. And then what I'm seeing a lot of uh, online is just, sorry, a lot on, of in event spaces, just people going online just not even do, thinking about hybrid. They're now doing like what they would do like lunchtime sessions as an industry, just meeting online in Zoom and doing it so badly that it discredits their brand. Mm -hmm. And they think, oh, it's easier now. We don't have to travel. Yeah, but it's actually a detraction from what you would offer in the first place. Even though you are offering it up now, anybody can access it rather than mm -hmm. traveling across the city or even, you know, I can't attend it because I don't live in your city. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's... That weights and balance is that again it comes back to literacy for me and from both parties as a viewer and as an organizer mm, yeah true. it's um, it's kind of like the idea when we all moved to websites that we got a brochure and we got the brochure and we took photographs of the brochure and put it on the line <laughs> that's exactly a beautiful you think you're copying yeah it's a copy and paste and it's not you can't copy and paste it's a different environment. Yeah. True. So you can't. It's like right. taking a Word document and then going, well, yeah, that's just the same as YouTube. Mm -hmm. It's the <laughs> same content because now I'm reading it out maybe, but it's not the same copy and paste. Yeah. yeah. I'm aware of your time. So uh, in terms of just 
being mindful of that, wrapping it up with a nice, maybe juicy question to both of you. What are you hopeful for this year? What are you hopeful for for the rest of this year? Still nine months of it, I think, left. Mm. We're in March now, yeah, Good nine, ten months. Would you like to kick it off? Uh, well, it, um, at the moment, um, it's been a really, really, really hard year for me. Mm -hmm. I actually cancelled an event, which um, Remote Together NZ was cancelled this year as well. Um, and then ZipTrek's been pretty damn tough. And then my mother died this year, and all that sort of stuff. So it's been—I'm actually just sneaking some time out. Yeah. So that's my main plan this year: is take a little bit of time, and then I can think about what I want to do. I do have lots of ideas I always do, but I'm trying to sort of put them aside and have a bit of. Of course, growth. yeah. What am I hopeful for? I'm hoping that next year is better than, or the next 12 months is better yeah. than the year, month, 12 months previous. Yeah. Yeah. It's I have no doubt they will moment. be. Both yeah. for you and lots of other people. Yeah. Thank you. Mayu? Um, yeah. I'm still taking a hit from my event being cancelled as well. Mm. Oh, you had an event as well cancelled. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I went as um, Japan Festival Wellington. Oh. Yeah. No. That was on this weekend. Oh. And We're all sitting here with dead events. <laughs> 20,000 so people attend you. Japan Festival. Oh. Yeah, well, we still don't know. Actually, we're going to have a meeting tonight um, whether it's going to be cancelled or postponed. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's a bit of a tough time for me too. For sure. As of today. But um, I think after this event, what I was hoping to do was um, to spend some time in the garden. <laughs> just do a, you know, just just get onto the earth. And because my, my friends bought me a compost bin for my birthday. <laughs> I'm really, really excited to build that. So, and I really have been waiting. So I want to do that first. And then um, I want to build this company. I want to build my this company going forward. Mm. Um, and I know that there's a lot of learning for me to do. There's a lot of, um, yeah, uh, preparation, visionaries. I'm really excited about, but also very, very, very scared. Um, yeah, so that's, that's something new that I want to do, um, including, you know, all your beautiful advices of diversing the portfolio and things like that too. So I think that's what I want to do. But for now, for the next month or so, I might just cry out a little bit more <laughs> and then okay. was, well, we'll, yeah, all join you. we'll take from here. <laughs> yeah. No, not a bad thing anymore. Yeah. No. No. Thank you. Thank you, people. Thank you. You lovely people. You. That was amazing. It's been fun, right? To sit down and just chill and chat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was cool. Thank you. Really good. That was Creative Welly, episode 13, Courageous Conversations with Bold Humans. My name is DK. Again, this is the audio podcast of the video podcast. The video podcast produced by John over at Empire Films and hosted by David at Flashdog Studios. We'll be back with another episode in a couple of weeks' time, so please subscribe and keep having courageous conversations.